If you need a Bible tonight to follow along with us, just raise your hand and turn to 2 Kings chapter 9. We're going to cover chapters 9 and 10, Lord willing, tonight. We'll see how far we get. But we'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 9 of 2 Kings in the Old Testament. So continue this uh, study of 2 Kings chapter 9. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And we're going to cover chapters 9 and 10 tonight of uh, that book, 2 Kings of the Old Testament. Just want to pass along a couple of things real quick. Men, uh, we have our men's breakfast. Seven, uh, well, 7 o'clock is the men's prayer, okay? And that'll be here at the church. So guys, if you can join us for that, it's a great time that we have a prayer as the men get together and we just pray for each other and pray for the fellowship and other needs that come up. Then at 8 o'clock will be the breakfast over at Golden Crow. So 7 o'clock men's prayer, 8 o'clock men's breakfast at Golden Crow down here on 23rd Avenue. Uh, I want to remind also the ladies, uh, ladies Christmas potluck, uh, December the 8th, and uh, Amy Banowitz is hosting that, so all that information is there in your bulletin, so ladies, uh, sign up for that. Uh, also, uh, there is youth bowling that they're being reminded of, the high schoolers, uh, on Sunday, December 9th from 6 to 8 o'clock, so parents want to remind you of that. And the ladies, 55 and over luncheon, uh, Christmas luncheon on the 14th, so be sure to look at everything in your bulletin. This Sunday, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, uh, as we have been the last couple of weeks in our study of the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2 we see the birth of the church, so very important passage that we're going to be covering uh, as we continue in our study of the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, and um, so invite somebody out, and uh, we're looking forward to traveling through the book of Acts um, in the New Testament. Everything else is there in your bulletin, take a look at it, but we want to get into our Bible study tonight. As Father, we do come and we ask that you would just... Uh, bless this time in the study of your word. Uh, again, we thank you for this time of worship. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And these two chapters that we covered, Lord, I know that um, they, um, it's heavy. And um, it just shows us um, what sin does. It just creates death. It's messy. Um, and that's the picture that we see very clearly. But there is hope. And I pray that, uh, once again, we would be reminded of the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, the hope that we have because he went to the cross for us. And, Lord, that uh, we would be encouraged somehow tonight. There are lessons for us in in these texts that we're going to read. And, Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to the things that you want to say to us here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 9, we read, And Elijah the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him in an inner room. So as we open up chapter 9, the scene has been this, that there is trouble in not only in the house of Israel, but in the house of Judah because of idol worship. And as we travel through 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, we know there's been a successive of kings in the northern nation of Israel that all of them have been idol worshipers. And, and we know that one particularly would come on the scene. His name was Ahab. And Ahab was married to Jezebel. And Ahab, not only was he an idol worshiper, but he had plunged the nation deep into Baal worship. He built the city of Samaria, which became the capital of the ten northern tribes up north. And he would build also a large temple there dedicated to Baal. So as Ahab was ruling, he was probably the worst of the kings that came on the scene up to this point in the house of Israel. And he was one that uh, was a very violent man, as well as his wife Jezebel. Matter of fact, Jezebel, as we saw her, she was one that had put to death some of the prophets, uh, the sons of the prophet that were there in the land. And you recall that we saw in 1 Kings chapter 19 that it was Obadiah that was hiding some of those sons of the prophets in a cave and feeding them because he was hiding them from Jezebel. She was putting some of them uh, to death. And also we know that she was one that wanted to put to death Elijah the prophet. You recall in chapter 19 of 1 Kings that after he had that great victory victory on Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven, that it was Jezebel that sent that message for him 
uh, to him, that is, that Elijah, I'm going to lop your head off. And so Elijah took off and went down to the mountain of God down in Arabia. And so we looked at all of that. But what is interesting is that it was Jezebel, as she continued in this, uh, we see her wickedness continuing into chapter 21 of the book of 1 Kings. And you recall that it was Ahab, that he wanted this vineyard that was next to his house that belonged to Naboth. He was there, his palace in the Jezreel Valley, which is in northern Israel. And the Jezreel Valley is a very beautiful place. It's a very fertile place. And he looked next door and he wanted this vineyard. He wanted to make it into a vegetable garden, which as we covered that uh, text, uh, to me doesn't make sense. Who takes valuable land of, you know, where there's a vineyard and want to turn it into a vegetable garden? But that is what uh, Ahab wanted to do. It was Naboth that said, no way, I'm not going to do that uh, because this is my inheritance. The, the Lord forbid that I would do that. And Ahab went home, you recall. He threw himself on his bed. He began to pout and cry. And it was Jezebel that came in and said, why are you upset? Well, I wanted to buy the vineyard from Naboth, but he won't sell it to me. So Jezebel said, get up, you're the king. You should be able to do what it is that you want. And Jezebel, you recall, made up this plan that she would have Naboth put to death. And that plan was carried out. And you recall that at that time, Elijah the prophet would come to Ahab and said, Ahab, because you and Jezebel have done this wickedness, because you have shed innocent blood, and we're going to see in this chapter that not only was Naboth put to death, but his sons as well. And that's why Ahab was able to take that vineyard, because there was no inheritance left from Naboth. There was no family, no sons to pass on that property. So in that, we know that judgment was pronounced. And the judgment was this, that Ahab, because you have continued in your sin and in your idol worship and in your Baal worship and in your violence, that judgment is going to come to you and your house is going to be cut off. That is, your sons, your descendants are going to be put to death. So that was one of the parts of the judgment. The second part was this, that, um, that Ahab, you yourself, you're going to be put to death. We saw that in the next chapter as we end 1 Kings, that it was Ahab that was killed in his chariot as he went to war against the Syrians. And then the third part of the judgment that was pronounced upon Ahab was that your wife Jezebel, she's going to die a violent death. Well, as we enter into chapter 9 of 2 Kings, we're going to see that um, the part about the judgment coming upon Ahab's household is going to happen here, and then also into chapter 10, and we're going to see the death of Jezebel. So that's what we have seen. And it is Ahab's son, Joram, that is on the throne at this time. And Joram has continued in the sins of his father in Baal worship, and it is Elijah the prophet that is called. Now, Elijah, you recall, he was that fiery prophet called up into heaven in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. Elijah passed the mantle of the prophetic office to Elijah. So Elijah has been ministering very powerfully, very effectively, here mostly to the house of Israel. And Elijah, he takes one of his prophets. Remember that as we've been traveling through these chapters, that there's this uh, school, it's like a Bible school, the sons of the prophet that Elijah has been ministering uh, at and, and with. And we know that he turns to one of his prophets, the sons of the prophet, and says, I want you to go and visit Jehu over there in, um, in, um, in uh, Ramoth Gilead, verse 1. And I want you to take a flask of oil. I want you to take him aside and anoint him as the king of Israel. Now, a couple things here. What is interesting is, as we read chapter 9 here, we think, well, now we're introduced to Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. This is not the Jehoshaphat that was the king down in Judah during the time of Ahab. You recall that it was Jehoshaphat that would go up to see Ahab, and Jehoshaphat was actually a good king as he ruled over Judah. He was one that believed in the Lord, but the problem with Jehoshaphat while he was ruling in Judah is that there was compromise in that he yoked himself with an unbeliever. And as we saw that in 1 Kings chapter 21, as Jehoshaphat goes up to see Ahab, that we discuss the principle that is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and that is 
that we as believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we discussed how there's a reason that God says that, and I think that we see an illustration of that here in 2 Kings. Because Jehoshaphat, he went to war with Ahab, and it was Jehoshaphat that also would enter into a business venture with Ahab's son in building ships, and those ships would end up being wrecked. But Jehoshaphat wasn't always the wisest individual, even though he was a believer in the Lord. He would team up, he would yoke himself with these unbelievers of Israel, Ahab and his son, and um, it ended up having disastrous results of that. And one of the things that, that Jehoshaphat does is that he takes his son, uh, Ahim, uh, um, his son Ahaziah, that is, and he goes to Ahab and he says, Ahab, why don't my son, uh, Ahaziah, marry your daughter, Ataliah? And so it was Jehoshaphat that I think that he really wanted to bring the two nations together. He would say, Jehoshaphat, that your people are my people and, and your horses as my horses and your chariots as my chariots, and we're all one. And I think Jehoshaphat wanted that so badly that he would compromise and he would yoke himself with the unbeliever. He says, why don't we just make this allegiance? Why don't my son go and marry your daughter, Ataliah? And we're going to see the disastrous results because of that. And Ahaziah, even though he reigned in Judah, that's where we ended last time in chapter 8. He, he was the son of Jehoshaphat, who was the king. Ahaziah was one that he continued in the sins of Ahab. And he was one that um, was very much involved in Baal worship and plunged the southern nation of Judah into Baal worship. So here is the prophet that's called to go to Jehu. This judgment that was pronounced on Ahab's house is now going to be carried out. Now, one more quick note before we move on. Jehu the prophet, or Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, as we're introduced to him, we're not really introduced to him in chapter 9 here. He was mentioned previously, wasn't he? I know you're thinking, I know what the answer is. But the answer is in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Remember when Elijah was running from Jezebel? And she was hiding, you know, or he was hiding in the cave, and he was all depressed, and the Lord said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And there was the earthquake, and there was the fire, and there was the wind, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake, the Lord wasn't in the fire, the Lord wasn't in the wind, but he heard the still small voice of the Lord. And, and Elijah, you're not the only one left. There's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Elijah, I want you to get up, and I want you to go find Elijah, because he's going to take the prophetic office from you, the mantle from you. And then also go and anoint Jehu. That's who you're to anoint as the new king of Israel. Now, why didn't Elijah, who was so faithful to the Lord, why didn't he do that? Why is it years later that even Elijah sends, you know, one of the young guys to go to anoint him? The reason? I don't know. But it is interesting, isn't it? For some reason, Elijah did not go and anoint Jehu at that time. And here it is years later that it's Elijah. He sends one of the young guys. He says, go and anoint him. Uh, take him into an inner room, anoint him, and you are to um, do that. And then after you anoint him, get out of there. Do not delay. So let's continue reading this story in verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he had arrived, there were captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, commander. And then he rose and went to the house, and he poured the oil on his head, and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all these servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. In verse 10, the dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and he fled. So this young guy, and I just kind of picture this, he's kind of a young college-looking guy, goes in and, you know, maybe a little wild-looking, and he goes in and 
says, Commander, you know, I want to talk to you. And so they go and he anoints him and he pronounced the judgment that was to come on the house of Ahab. He kind of reviews chapter 21 of 1 Kings to Jehu and says, this is what you're to do. This is what God has called you to, to do. You're to be the king. You're going to carry out this judgment on Ahab's house and also on Jezebel. And then he opens up the door and he flees. And we read in verse 11, then Jehu came out to the servants of his master and one said to him, is all well? And why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, you know the man and his babble. That's why I kind of picture this young kind of college looking guy, and, you know, wild looking guy. And he's like, who was that? And some kind of madman and babbling and all of this. But I do want to say this. That as you give the word of the Lord in truth to others, that they might call you a madman or, you know, you're just babbling or whatever it might be. Because not everyone will receive what we share with them when we share the truth of God's word or we share the gospel message. And the world will look at you and me as Christians and think they're just all you know, messed up and mixed up and just religious. They're babbling. They're madmen. But here's the interesting thing. that I think that Jehu, that he came and he had this countenance that they knew something was up. They're saying, what, is, what does this guy want? What was he babbling about? And he's going, oh, he just, you know, the man in his babble. But there was something on Jehu's face that they knew that, that he had heard something that really struck him. And so they said a lie. We know that he said something very important. And tell us now. So he said, thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. So they recognized that what this prophet had to say was true, that Jehu, Jehu, you are to be the king of Israel. And isn't it wonderful when we do take the opportunity to just share truth with somebody when it does bring conviction to them, when it brings correction, uh, when it brings them to the place where they realize when we share the gospel with somebody that they need Jesus Christ. Oh, it's wonderful when that happens. So not everyone is going to think that, you know, you're just babbling. But the opportunities that you have, you never know who you're going to touch very deeply with the truth of God's word and with the gospel message. I just want to encourage you, particularly and especially this time of the year as we enter into the Christmas season, that we're going to be talking with a lot of people. We're going to be talking with family members. We're going to be talking with friends and coworkers that you share with them the gospel message the Christmas gospel, that Jesus Christ came to this world, born as a babe of Bethlehem. You know, they, they know that, and it's kind of a cute little story, but we can continue with it, that it's an amazing story, because that babe of Bethlehem would grow up and later go to a cross for you, and he would die for your sins because of his love for you, and that we can give them the truth of what God's word declares, and there are those whose hearts are going to be convicted and opened up and softened because you took the opportunity to be able to go and do that and to give them God's word. And I pray that we would be sensitive to the leading of the Lord in that. So here is Jehu. He's anointed as the king. And so in verse 14 we read, Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, king of Syria. Now remember Hazael? He was the one that, that killed Ben-Hadad II up in Syria. So there's all this drama going on. And, and Hazael, he, he kills the king of Syria. He takes over. He's going to war against Israel. And we know that uh, Joram, in chapter 8, was injured in fighting against Syria. So um, he's trying to defend Joram in Israel. Uh, they're trying to defend um, Ramoth Gilead. And Joram, the king of Israel, is injured. So he goes back to his father's house, to there in the Jezreel Valley, there to his palace, and he is recovering from his wounds. And you recall that we finished chapter 8, that Ahaziah went up to see his uncle, Ahaziah, who's the king of Judah. So up there in the Jezreel Valley, you know, there at the house of Ahab, or where Jerome now lives, 
He's recovering from his wounds. You know, his nephew comes, Ahaziah, to come and see him, the king of Judah. They're there. And Jehu here, he's going to pay him a little visit. And King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from his wounds, which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it to Jezreel. So what Jehu is saying is, I want there to be no communication whatsoever between um, Ramoth Gilead and Jezreel where uh, Jerome is because I'm going to go pay him a visit, verse 16. He rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel for Jerome was laid up there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet them and, and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, The messenger went to them, but is not coming back. Verse 19, Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, He went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. I didn't know you could drive a chariot spinning the wheels and, and <laughs> furiously, but I think it tells a little bit of his personality. You know, you know the guy who has the lead foot um, or you know the kid in the youth group that has a lead foot or whatever, and it's kind of like as they race off. Well, this was uh, here Jehu, and again, he's a very aggressive individual, and they said it's got to be Jehu. As they are there, as they're watching, looking out, you can look over Jezreel Valley. It's a large valley that you can see for miles, and all of a sudden this dust is rising up, and there's a company of men, and the watchman yells out to Jerome, hey, there's some guys coming, so they send a horseman out, and he goes to Jehu and says, is it peace? Is it well? You know, uh, why are you coming, essentially? And he says, what's it to you? Get behind me. They send out a second you know, horseman. Says the same thing. Is it, well, what's going on? And it was uh, Jehu that says, get behind me. What's it to you? And it shows us that he has power here. And Joram, that his you know, power is diminishing. He's weak at this point. He's weak physically, but also politically as well. So it's not good news. And as Joram hears that it's, it's you know, Jehu, he's you know, driving furiously with his chariot here to, you know, and, and all of this, he, in verse 21, said, Make ready, and his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and to meet him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Jerome saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace as long as the harlotry of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft for so many? And so Jerome turned and, um, around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. So as Jehu goes to Jezreel, and as here Ahaziah and Joram comes out to meet him, um, he asks him, Is it peace? And he says, how can there be peace, you know, because of what Jezebel has done, essentially. And he has a point there. You know, here's the thing. That the world is looking for peace. And as we enter into this time of Christmas, there is that magnificent story of the birth of Jesus recorded for us in Luke's narrative in chapter 2. And we're all familiar with the story. And you recall that there is the heavenly host that would begin to uh, praise God to those shepherds out there in the field that were watching our flock by night. And we know that their message was peace and goodwill towards men. You know, we bring you tidings of good news is what the angel would say. So there's a lot of talk about glad tidings and, and joy and goodwill towards men at this time of the year. But you see, only those who are in Christ Jesus, only those who have submitted their lives to the Prince of Peace have true peace in their lives. Because we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ, who has come, who's the mediator, who has died for our sins, and not only are we forgiven of sin as we come and surrender our hearts to him, 
And not only do we have the hope of heaven, but we have right relationship with the Father. So we have peace with God now, and we can have the peace of God in our hearts. And apart from a life surrendered and committed to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, there will be no peace in your life. There will be no peace. He desires to give you peace with God, but also that peace that passes understanding. He desires to give you that peace that rules in your heart, Colossians chapter 3. And without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there will be no peace. Matter of fact, I'm reminded, let me read it to you very quickly from Isaiah chapter 57 and verses 19 through 17. And you can jot it down, but let me read it to you. As here is the Lord that he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 57 verse 19, we read, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. For there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. For those who are in rebellion against God, for those who don't know him, there is no peace, period. That's what the word of God declares. And there is no glad tidings. And there is no joy. And that is something that you and I as Christians that we have that we can be thankful that, Lord, that I have your peace, that there is truly glad tidings that I can have in my life and real joy in my life because of my relationship with you that comes through Jesus Christ. So here is, you know, that Joe Ram, he knows that, uh, that Jehu is taking over the kingdom and he yells out to Ahaziah, treachery Ahaziah in verse 24, then Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram, that's just a variant spelling of uh, Joram, uh, between his arms, and an arrow came out of his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bikkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him in the track of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite, and for remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. And surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. So verse 26 tells us that not only was Naboth killed, but his sons as well. So there was no inheritance left. That's why Ahab was able to take over the vineyard. But I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. And then verse 27, Ahaziah, when the king of Judah saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him in the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibelim. And then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. So the king of Israel is killed by Jehu. The king of uh, Judah is killed as well because of his association with uh, Ahab. Remember that Ahaziah was um, the grandson of Ahab, and he dies there in Megiddo. Megiddo was a little town right on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. You can go there. And also we know from the book of Revelation, as you, you go through the scriptures, it's interesting to mark uh, where different kings and different people and battles took place in this valley of Jezreel, in this valley of Megiddo. And we also know that in the last days, right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, that the last world war is going to take place here in northern Israel in this valley, in the Jezreel Valley, in the Valley of Megiddo, where the nations of the world, the Antichrist and his forces, and the kings of the north and the kings of the east are going to gather together in this last battle, this last world war. The reason that I say this last world war is because there's going to be some other major wars that are going to happen before that. Whenever there is turmoil in the Middle East, people ask, is this the Battle of Armageddon? Is this the battle that's going to take place in the Valley of Megiddo? No, it's not. And so I want to encourage you that as we are going to end this year, and the upheaval that we see in the Middle East, we just saw uh, the, um, you know, the upheaval that we saw between Israel and Gaza, the Hamas that was firing rockets, and now there's a ceasefire. That ceasefire is not going to hold. Because we know that there's going to be some major wars that are going to take place. So I would encourage you on New Year's Eve that 
you come out and you bring your friends and you bring others that we can look at the scriptures and see how it lines up with the things that are taking place because there's going to be some major upheaval that's going to happen. When exactly it's going to happen, I don't know. How it's going to happen, I don't know. But I believe that we're seeing the pieces of the puzzle coming together that we look at it and say, hmm, is Psalm 83 something that's about ready to come to pass? Ezekiel 38 that will follow afterwards? Are we seeing this upheaval in our day that the Lord spoke about that is going to happen? And we know that the valley of Megiddo will be that place of that last world war. I just want us to be wise and discerning in the days in which we're living in because many Christians are not. And they are not learning about what the scriptures has to say about the end times. And they're even being told more and more that we don't have to know. And it was Jesus that rebuked the religious leaders of his day because they didn't know the coming of the Son of Man. And I know that we don't know the day or the hour of the return of the Lord, but we can know the times and the seasons in which we are in. And what it does, we are told, commanded in Scripture, is to be watching, to be faithful, to be sober, to be vigilant, not to go to sleep. We're children of the day, not of the night. And we are to be ones that we are looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ because I believe that he can come back at any time. And what I hope it does for this Christmas season and what it does is we will be entering into a new year before we know it. That it would really stir our hearts. This is an exciting time to be a Christian. We have so much to share with people. And I pray, first of all, that none of us are putting our hope into this world. And I don't mean to be a, a, you know, a doom and gloom kind of individual. But I see what the Bible has to say, and that's what I am. I am a simple Bible teacher. And as I look at what the Bible declares is going to come to pass in the last days, and I see as I line it up with what has taken place, I know that we're in the last days. And I hope and pray that none of you are putting your hope in this world. I hope that you're not one that is compromising, as we're going to say, see Jehu here, that he is one that is being used of the Lord at this time, as hard as it is to bring judgment on the house of Ahab, there was compromise in his life. And he began to serve the gods of Jeroboam and the sins of Jeroboam that is going to those places of the temple that was dedicated to the golden calf. It was Jesus that said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God in the world. And this world, there is no hope. There is no hope in this world. It's going to come to a tragic end. And what can happen is, is we can get lawed into so easily into the seduction of the world. And I know that we all have to make money and we all have a living and we all have businesses and, and we all have bills to pay and all of this. But I pray that we wouldn't have two masters. Jehu had two masters here. We're going to see that. Because you're going to love one and hate the other. And Jesus said, you can't love mammon, the things of the world. You can't love money and those things and the possessions of the world. And me, you're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. That our first love would be Jesus Christ. Besides, if you haven't noticed, we're broke. We're all hearing about the fiscal cliff. What's going to happen? We have no money. And I really believe that the debt that we've dug ourselves into, that we will never pay it back. That it is impossible for us now. That we've been so irresponsible that we're going to see the consequences come upon our children and our grandchildren. How we need to be wise, folks. And we need to be watching and prioritizing the things of the Lord. So Ahaziah, he's killed, and in Jezebel's violent death. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. And then as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Is it peace? They're all asking, Is it peace? And yet there's no peace because of their disobedience and because of their sin. Listen. I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us here tonight. If there is sin in your life that you're playing around with, there is going to be no peace. There's going to be turmoil. 
and there's going to be problems. And there's going to be difficulty that's going to come. You may want peace in that situation, but it will not come. If you're compromising in a relationship, if you're compromising in any other area, you're sneaking downstairs, pulling up things on the computer that you shouldn't be, if there's compromise in the workplace or in your business, listen, you will not have peace. You're going to be troubled in your heart. I think that all of us, that we want peace in our lives, don't we? And peace is going to come as you just desire to follow after the Lord. Here is this woman who her whole life was marked with violence. She says, is there peace? Is there peace? What do you mean, is there peace? And he looked up, and as Jehu entered verse 31 at the gate, he said, she said, is there peace, Simri, murder of your master? I want to highlight that in verse 31. And he looked up at the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So two and three eunuchs looked out at him. And then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they came back and told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel's uh, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the courts of Jezebel shall be as refuge on the surface of the field in a plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Not an easy chapter to read, is it? But I think there's some major lessons here that we can kind of sum up before we go into chapter 2. One is, as we see here, that as they come and they're getting here, to, and here is Jezebel up in this this window and she yells out is it peace and uh, Zimri murder of your master first of all she paints herself up and she, she uses flirtation fixes herself up and then the second thing that she does is she tries intimidation verse 31 as I said to you Zimri murder of your master what's that all about you recall that it was Zimri, remember, that he did the same thing as Jehu in that he assassinated, Zimri did, the king. So he's king. It's only a few days later, and the people are saying, Zimri, we don't want you to be the king. And the people rebelled against him. So what he did is he went into his house, Zimri did, and he burnt it, and he ended up dying. He ended up killing himself. And here she is. She, first of all, tries to flirt, flirtation, and then intimidate. Hey, same thing's going to happen to you, Jehu. You better leave me alone. You know, that's what the enemy will do. The enemy is going to try to get you to flirt with sin. He's very good about it. He's going to bring things into your life that's all painted up and looks all nice. And it's going to say, come. Come, just take of this. It's okay. Flirt around with it a little bit. It's okay if you sneak down and take a little look on the computer tonight. It's okay if you compromise a little bit at work. Hey, it's okay if you get involved with this individual that is not a believer. They're nice. They're smart. They're funny. There's nothing wrong. Go out with them. Have a little bit of fun with them. There's nothing wrong with going out with the guys and having some fun. Hey, it's the Christmas season. And he'll bring that flirtation to you. That it's okay to flirt around with sin. It's okay to flirt around with compromise. Or he'll try to intimidate you. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, said, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. And that's what he does. Flirtation and intimidate. He'll try to bring fear into your life and doubt. He's the accuser of the brethren. He'll tell you you're no good. God can't use you. God can't forgive you. He doesn't love you. He'll intimidate you with all kinds of things. And you don't need to be intimidated by the enemy. Because he has no authority over you. And you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and having wiped out the handwritings of requirement, that he made a public spectacle of Satan and his, you know, demons to where they don't have any direct authority over you, Colossians chapter 2. He's been stripped of that authority. Oh, he's still going to try to bring temptation to you to try to get you to flirt with sin. Uh, He's still going to try to intimidate you with fear, with discouragement, accusing you, trying to bring you down any way that he can, trying to get a foothold into your marriage, into your family. He is going to try to intimidate you, but we don't have the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So here she is. She tries that, and it doesn't work, and they end up throwing her out the window, and she splatters all over the ground. Nice life, Jezebel. Nice life. We see in this chapter that sin is messy. It is messy. It is ugly and it is messy. So again, we're reminded of this, and I know that we know this, that sin is just going to make a mess of your life. We are such a blessed people because we get to walk in God's wisdom, don't we? We get to walk in, in, in a way that is good because the Lord's ways are good. We don't have to be fooled by the world. We don't have to be intimidated by the world. We don't have to be tricked by the world. We don't have to be cheated by the world. We don't have to be deceived. And as you walk in the ways of the Lord, know this, that His ways are good. And what I hope and pray for all of us, that none of us would say that, well, Lord, I I read what your word has to say about this area of my life or this direction I should do or these instructions or, you know, whatever it might be for you, for me. And we would say, but you know what? I'm going to go another direction. I'm going to do it the world's way. I'll do it my way. Or, you know, I just don't agree with that, Lord. No, don't do that. But every area of your life and my life, is that we're going to take heed to what the Word of God has to say and apply it into our lives. And that's where blessing and richness is going to come and the peace of God that passes understanding. And we will see Him work and we will see Him bless as we walk with Him closely. So here is Jezebel. She goes out and she has a violent death just as the Word of the Lord is is fulfilled that was told to to Ahab in chapter 21 of 1 Kings. But I, I don't want to leave this chapter with just this kind of this, this ugly kind of situation that is here and will continue in chapter 10. But I want to leave you with this. And I don't know if we'll get into chapter 10 tonight, but, but please listen. I want to draw attention to verse 35. There is nothing left of her but the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. We don't have to live this kind of life. We don't have to live a life that is of deception and just misery and depression and defeat. You know why? Because of the skull of Jesus who allowed them to put that crown of thorns on his head, the Judean thorns that... You can go to Israel today, you can go to Jerusalem, you can pick those Jordan thorns that they use to, to weave that crown of thorns upon the head of Jesus. They're about three or four inches long. They're sharp as razors, they're hard as nails. They would completely lacerate his scalp, dig deep into his, his skull that he gave freely for you. His palm of his hands and his feet that he would give to be nailed to that cross. So tonight we have reason to rejoice and be blessed and to leave here with great joy in our hearts (laughs) that we truly can have peace and goodwill and glad tidings because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and going to Calvary's cross. Remember that that he loved you so much that he died for you. And what my prayer is, if there's anyone here tonight that you've never surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, that you would do that. Because Jesus is the one that has brought salvation. 
Jesus is the one that's brought forgiveness of sin. He's the only one that can save you. And there is hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, he died for your sins, but he was put into a tomb and he rose again after three days. So Peter would write that we have a living hope, not a dead hope, but a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty. And now the Lord desires to save you if you never reached out to receive that free gift of salvation that comes as you turn away from the world, as you repent, that's what the word repent means, turn to Jesus Christ, open up your heart to him as your personal Lord and Savior because he gave up his goal, he gave up his hands and his feet for you personally because of his love for you. For us that are Christians here tonight, we can rejoice because we belong to the Lord and he directs us and guides us and he wants to work everything out for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And that is you continue to trust in him, grow in his love, grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You yield to him, you look to him, you rest in his love. And that's where you're going to have lasting peace and glad tidings and great joy that is available for all of us. So Father, we thank you. And Lord, we didn't get as far as we wanted to tonight, but that's okay. Because I believe that you wanted to emphasize some of these things to our hearts for a reason. And Lord, my prayer is that I just allowed you to speak and, and the things that you wanted to be emphasized were tonight. And Lord, as we just take some time right now, Lord, I thank you that we can be here tonight and just in a study of your word. And we see very clearly what sin does. It's so messy. It brings defeat. It brings death. It robs us of joy. It robs us of peace that is available for us. Sin of all is, first of all, robbed man of peace with you. We're, as the scripture says, there's, we're at, enmity against you. That is, there's a separation because of our sin. But Jesus Christ is our mediator. So if this does mean anything to anyone here tonight, that first of all, there is peace with God that comes only through Jesus Christ. Give your heart to him. Because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time, as the scripture says. And if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart, will you open up to him? Will you just pray in your heart, Jesus, come into my heart, into my life right now. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess that I am a sinner. Jesus, I do believe that you died for me personally for all of my sins as you gave of your hands and feet to be pinned to that cross as that crown of thorns was put on your head because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I come to you to receive the free gift of eternal life that comes through faith in you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that you rose from the grave because you're knocking on the door of my heart right now and I open my heart to you. Father, I ask that if anybody prayed that prayer right now, that they would just right now sense your presence in a very deep way. Just receiving what the promise of your word says by faith. And I thank you. And Lord, I pray for all of us that are here tonight that we would, this Christmas season, as we enter into a new year, that there wouldn't be compromise in our lives. We wouldn't try to serve two masters. We wouldn't, Lord, flirt with sin. We wouldn't be intimidated by the enemy, but walk out of here with just confidence in you and assurance of your love. To walk closely with you. Enjoy the peace that you have, that you desire to have rule in our hearts and a past understanding. Lord, when we face those situations where we're not sure, Lord, why? Lord, you want to give us a peace that passes understanding. 
because you are working for good in eternity's values and views. So we trust in you and rest in your love. Lord, I just want to pray tonight while we got a little bit of time. For all of us that are here as we enter into the Christmas season, I know that there are some that are probably struggling right now. That maybe you're wondering or anxious. There are many needs right now, Lord. Do you bring provision for those who need provision, wisdom to those who need wisdom, strength to those who need strength? Lord, that you bring joy to those who are downtrodden. So thankful that your word says that you don't quench a smoking flax and you don't break a bruised reed. That you would show compassion for your people. Show yourself strong on their behalf. Lord, I do pray for those who are sick that you bring healing. That, Lord, you bring a touch of healing to them. Lord, tonight as we come together, I just want to pray for little girl Lillian in our fellowship who has leukemia. But Lord, that you bring healing to her. That you be with her mom and dad and her siblings. And Lord, just be with them and minister to them. I thank you that, that we're able to just encourage them. But Lord, more than anything, that you bring complete healing. We, we hear of a good report that that very well is possible and probable. But Lord... We ask that you would just touch her, minister to her. She's going through the chemo treatments. That you would bless her. Lord, I just want to pray for, for Ann Vanslager. She's one of the first ones that ever came to this church. As we hear tonight, she had a stroke. And Lord, I just pray you be with her and her family. Minister to her. She loves you so much. I just pray for your comfort to come to her right now. And that she would sense that and not be anxious, as well as her family. And Lord, I just pray for those who need a healing touch in any way. And so, Lord, we lift everyone up to you in that way. Father, I pray you bless our fellowship here tonight. Thank you that we can be here. Bless this Christmas season. May we go out of here just speaking of your truth and giving of the Christmas gospel. Lord, not being afraid, touching the hearts of others, being a light to others, be watching, to be faithful to you and have a desire just the Lord to love you, to walk closely with you. So bless everyone here as we go our way, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?